there was a, a liberal strand, a humanitarian strand, and the other things, the empire learned from its mistakes. Uh, so that's why I think the the way in which the empire exhausted itself in the Second World War is a kind of, says a lot, <laughs> that uh, the way the empire died or exhausted itself before it died was to spend itself fighting Nazism. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. Now it's been brought to my attention that I have a number of new listeners. So I say to you, welcome. It's fantastic to have you join. Well done, top marks from me. In this pod, you'll find plenty of varied content and guests from ancient history to the relatively recent past, from historians to historical fiction authors, and from polemics on the West today to historical myth busting. Today's episode is one that I was trying to arrange a bit last minute, so I haven't managed to trail, but it's with Nigel Bigger, who is the author of a new book, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning. This title has just come out and has been doing very well, so there's clearly an interest in the subject, and so I wanted to get him on the pod to discuss it. Now, Nigel is considered by some to be a controversial fellow, but I have to say, having read his book, I was quite surprised by that, because it seemed quite a grounded and balanced take on the empire. So by that, he deals with both the terrible actions of British colonialists head-on, but he also looks at parts of the empire that were beneficial, and which you heard him talk about at the top there. As some of you may know from our recent chat with Saul David on the Anglo-Zulu War, empire was not necessarily as simple as one thinks, so I hope we deal with those complexities in today's chat. Some of what you hear you may wish to comment on, so by all means get in touch with me, I'd be happy to hear from you, and you'll find links in the show notes. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. Please do subscribe and rate and review if you can. And I'll hand you over to me talking with Professor Nigel Bigger. Nigel Bigger, welcome. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Oliver. My, my pleasure to be here. Well, I've been very keen to speak to you because the, your new, latest book or your new book, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning, which has come out just about two or three weeks ago, has been doing very well. And I wanted to uh, speak to you really because it's an unusual, well, I, I don't know how unusual it is. I don't know how many books there are like this. I don't think there are many that are, uh, give a moral reckoning of, of colonialism in the British Empire. And I've I've read it and I found it fascinating and um i've really enjoyed it and and what i wanted to speak to you about really was that this and we're going to get on to the books had a difficult birth and i'm very keen to speak to you about that and i would say that some people might describe this book as controversial but when i was reading the book I couldn't understand what all the fuss was about. And that's not to say I, I'm saying that because I, the book wasn't interesting to me. It, it was. It's more the fact that I, I I was expecting to find things a little bit more controversial than they really than they really are. Because you give a very balanced view of both positive and negative of, of empire, particularly the British Empire. Yes, yes. Um, that's an interesting action of yours, Oliver, and it, it says a lot, because uh, the truth is, <laughs> um, what you read is is the kind of stuff I write. Um, I, I'm not a natural controversialist. Uh, I don't actually seek to be provocative. Um, I'm cautious, 
and I'm careful and um, I, I try and anticipate uh, all sides of an argument and, and navigate my way argumentatively toward a conclusion. And I'm willing to state definite conclusions that um, uh, I'm sure some people will disagree with strongly. Uh, but that's that's always been my my approach. But uh, so so hence my complete bewilderment when five years ago um, I just published an article in the um, London Times making what I thought was the completely anodyne point, although I think it's a true one, that we British can find cause for both shame and pride in our imperial past. And I, I just launched a project called Ethics and Empire a few months before that, and that's when. Um, uh, Priyamvada Gopal from Cambridge University tweeted um, uh, to her political allies in Oxford, uh, oh my God, this is serious, SHIT, we must block capital, shut this down. But the, my point is this, um, that, that um, my moderate, balanced point of view nevertheless provoked such a severe reaction on the part of some on the left. And so this ethics course that you started, I, I guess, and the reaction to it, I suppose is partly the reason why it was difficult with your first publisher to get the book published. And this is a, a very interesting story that I th thought the listeners would, would certainly be uh, interested in because this is my role as an editor. I find this quite disturbing in that this book, you had a deal with your first publisher, but that then was effectively cancelled yes um just to to be clear about this this project i referred to um it was called ethics and empire we launched it in july 17 and um it, it was conceived with me by probably uh, the most eminent historian of empire writing in english john darwin and it's it's it's, it's not designed as a defense of british empire or even of empire, it's designed to look at how late Roman Romans or ancient Chinese viewed the empire of their day in moral terms. So, so how did they assess empire? Uh, so th that was that project, and th that that um, is what sparked, I think, uh, the reaction, the strong reaction from some parts of the left that I got. Um, but uh, you know, I survived uh, um, the turmoil of December. 2017. Um, in early 2018, uh, Robin Baird Smith from Bloomsbury Publishing approached me, uh, suggested that I write a book on colonialism. Eventually, I agreed, signed a contract, and produced the manuscript at the end of 2020. I, I was due to present, pre present the manuscript um, by 31st of December 2020. I did so at 3 p.m. on that day with a whole nine hours to spare. Um, that's very yeah. unlike an academic, isn't it? <laughs> that's um, the students meant to be doing that. No, <laughs> my recent experience of essay crisis. Uh, yes, I, I like to live dangerously. Clearly, um, um, so Robin Robin read read the manuscript and he wrote back to my great pleasure. He said, uh, "I'm speechless." He said, with regard to the quality of the writing and the rigor of the research, and he said, uh, "It's a it's it's an important book." And he predicted sales of between 15 and 20,000 copies. And so he put it into the copy editing process at Bloomsbury. They even produced a book cover. But three months later, in, in the middle of uh, March, I got an email from the top of Bloomsbury announcing that uh, they were postponing publication indefinitely because, quote, 
public feeling is unfavorable. And uh, I was shocked and depressed. Um, uh, but I decided, and I was in, told that, that, in fact, they wanted me to walk away from the contract. Um, but I wasn't willing to let them go that easily. So I, I engaged them in correspondence, trying to get them to commit to paper just what was the real reason for their um, reaction. And I asked them, you know, <laughs> innocently, so, so which public feeling are you referring to? There being more than one public feeling. And I asked them, under what conditions would um, publication become possible again? And they declined to answer. And um, in April, I got a letter saying, you know, I, we will show you, you, you're impatient to get this published. Uh, so we're, we're not going to send your contract back to you. Um, uh, now, now they claim that I walked away from it. That's not true um, because I, I then went to spend several hundred pounds on a lawyer uh, to to find out whether I could hold them to my contract and discover that due to a clause I couldn't. Uh, and then in uh, later in April, I let Bloomsbury know exactly what I thought about what they'd done. And, and most of all, apart from personal distress, uh, what distressed me was the thought that we in Britain have come to the place where mainstream publishers will not publish uh, good quality uh, work on important topics just because uh, some people might be upset. And I was told that um, the problem was that some junior colleagues in Bloomsbury had protested about handling uh, my material. Uh, again, they deny that, but I have to say it's the only plausible explanation that, that's left standing right now. Well, if that really is true, it's... Um... One wonders if they'd uh, even read the manuscript, and it and it's it's pleasing to know that the um, it it was then picked up by Harper Collins, who've now published it, and it's doing very well. Yes, it is, and and I I because I'm not a professional historian, and I, I anticipated um, the uh, usual line of criticism that's come along, namely the bigger has no standing as an historian to talk about these things. It's only professional historians who have the right, apparently. Um, so I took care to solicit pre-publication commendations from about 10 or 11 mostly historians with one journalist uh, Matthew Paris and uh, I was delighted that many of them use the words balanced fair uh, rigorous in in describing the book uh, and, and I, to be plausible to to a reasonable reader I had to be that because uh, you know if I if I'd written a book that said that uh, the British Empire was nothing but sweet reason and and good stuff. It would not have been plausible. Apart from not being true, it just wouldn't be plausible. So I, I had to, to to look at the the bad bits of which there are very bad bits in the face, um, and nevertheless come to to a judgment. That's what I try to do. Well, perhaps we can uh, we can talk about some of those. The book itself is, it, as I say, it, it to me it, it's it's it is balanced, and you know, as we say, as I've just mentioned, that you know there are, there are bad sides to it, but also, you know, there are some more positive elements. But I was wondering, you've talked about the Chinese Empire um, at the beginning of this conversation, mm. and I've studied ancient history and that you know, empire, the nature of the very nature of empire is that it is because it subjugates weaker uh, in inverted commas civilizations or tribes or groups or whatever whatever you want to call it inevitably there will be a clash and and there will be a loser and do you think that the reason why it's so emotive to talk about 
because it's just a little bit more recent. I mean, uh, uh, the empire probably yeah. end of World War One is is uh, end of Second World War. I know is sort of almost officially when India gains independence in 1947 is often described as the end of the British Empire. But do you think that's why it's so emotive? Because it's more recent. So there, there are two questions you, you raised. First of all, about the nature of empires in general, and you talk about subjugation. And I, I think actually, as a, as a general description of empire, that's not accurate. Um, certainly, it's a feature of empire that one people dominates another. Uh, subjugation is not always the case. Sometimes uh, certain peoples prefer to be dominated to be dominated by another people. So, for example, um, late 1950s, early 1960s, several million Chinese opt to leave the Chinese mainland to enter the British colony of Hong Kong, which, while not democratic, um, offered the rule of law and stability, which was not present on the Chinese mainland. So they opted, in a sense, to be dominated by British rule. But, but even, even then, even though it wasn't democratic, I mean, British rule in Hong Kong or elsewhere could not have survived. I mean, no rule can survive which pays no attention to the people it rules because because it will soon provoke resentment and, and rebellion and the and the, the the numbers of british um british government officials and british troops and british merchants um in most of the colonies was tiny and there were one point i i, I quote this in the book uh, i think one uh, viceroy of india said if 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 every black man picks up a grain of sand and chucks it at us, we're going to be buried. <laughs> so so I, I think to, to characterize empire or colonialism in general, in general as subjugation is a mistake. Uh, um, it's much more subtle than that. Uh, so that, that's, that, that was on one point to raise. So the other one was, yes, why, why the focus on British empire? Um, well, I think the focus is on uh, European empires, and, and I'll include uh, in that American empire. And th th it's a very interesting question, uh, why it is that no one cares about uh, the ancient um, um, empires of the Middle East, for example, or um, the Zulu Empire of the 1820s, or the Comanche Empire of the 1700s, or, or uh, Arab empires, or Chinese empire, Mughal empire. No one cares about that. They only care about white empires. <laughs> European empires. Now, why is that? Well, uh, I, I interpret this as um, this selection as, um, as a symptom of the fact that this assault uh, on um, the record of European empires is an assault on the record of the West. Um, and that, that's why I, I, as I made clear at the beginning of the book, that, that's why I chose to write the book. To defend the record of the West, because I think the West, for all its faults, um, is worth believing in, and certainly now worth defending against uh, totalitarian, ruthless enemies such as Putin and President Xi in China. But I think I think that's why it's the focus. It's not just that it's modern; it's that it's the British Empire is Western. And um, my book has the title "Colonialism," and I decided early on, you know, I can't, I couldn't possibly um, uh, cover the whole of the history of every empire. And there's more than enough to be going on with in the British Empire, but the British Empire was the largest and the greatest and most widespread of the European empires. Um, and it was also before the advent of the United States into, into the status of a world power. It was, as it were, the, the leading power of, of 
um, of the West. Inevitably, when we discuss the British Empire, um, slavery is 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 mentioned because it was a it was a key part, certainly of the first sort of half of the, of the empire. But then it was also involved in the second half in a slightly different way, in in that the empire was seeking to end slavery. But I wanted to ask because in the book you describe slavery brilliantly, really, because you, you know the horrors of slavery are included in the pages of your book. Mm. And I mean, I studied 18th century um, English and European history uh, for A-level, quite unusually, I think. Um, and I never learned um, about the slave trade. I learned about the Seven Years' War and and um, us um, duffing it up with the French, um, often coming off on the best. Apologies to my French listeners there. Um, they're used to it, though. Uh, the... the um, the slave trade didn't get a look in uh, on my Oxford and Cambridge, I think was the, the, the examining board in the curriculum. And this was in the 90s. But the, your description um, was very is very powerful of the, of the horrors of slavery. And I don't think you would be averse at all to its inclusion, which it now is in, in the curriculum. And and that's one of the things that I, I was uh, reading re whilst reading your book, just I wanted to mention the fact that it, it provides that balance. This is not an apology yeah. by yeah. any means. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested to hear uh, your own testimony, Oliver, about what you didn't read about uh, in school or university. Because uh, I, I can't remember when it was I first read about slavery. Certainly, I, I read about the evolution movement and my implication about slavery when I was very young. So I've always been a bit sceptical as to the claim that no one in Britain knows about slavery. Um, I knew about slavery. I just didn't, I, it didn't. I didn't know they, um, they, yeah, they, I don't think it. Details. Yeah. Or mate, I mean, uh, yeah, I, 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 but I don't want to, because I, I had a very good history teacher, so I don't want to right. uh, uh, cast aspersions to his motivation. Well, it, to, be, to be fair, there's a, hell, there's a hell of a lot of history. I mean, you, yeah. As a school teacher, you can't cover it all. But um, just in, in terms of you know, what do I think about the, um, the, the, the new um, emphasis on, the history of slavery in, let's say, school curricula. Well, I think it's perfectly fair. My worry is that school kids will learn about the the appalling British involvement in slave trade and slavery, but not about the fact that Britain was among the earliest states in the history of the world to abolish the slave trade and, and then to spend 150 years suppressing it all over the world because I mean, the mantra that's been dominant for the last 18, 24 months is colonialism and slavery, as if um, uh, colonialism and slavery were the same thing. And um, certainly I've noticed that those who want us to remember uh, what we were up to uh, 220 years ago, or 200 years ago, never mention, never mention what happened from 1807 onwards. Uh, so provided school kids get both the horrors of slavery and um, the admirable 50-year-long campaign to abolish it, which was successful, and then learn that the British Empire was committed to anti-slavery from 1807 until its demise 150 years later, if they get both sides, I'd be perfectly happy. The fight to end slavery uh, across the Atlantic, um, particularly with the West Africa Squadron, is 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 a fascinating story. And what what I was interesting interested in reading in your book 
describing the the financial cost it, that there was because there there is a big argument at the moment around reparations which is obviously a complicated matter but um the the financial cost of the british empire in attempting to stop slavery is is significant and you you mention figures in your book but also there does seem as though we need to explore a little bit more what the financial benefits or the maybe even the costs of slavery as well so it's an interesting balance that you provide in your book on that on that level yes so uh, starting with the uh, classic uh, marxist account of eric williams in 1940 in capitalism and slavery there has been the argument that profits from the slave trade and slavery made a major contribution to britain's industrial revolution and subsequent prosperity and global power. Um, now, I depend entirely on what I read in other historians, but I've read a, a number of uh, specialists on slavery, including several economic historians and the Dwayan, or one of the Dwayans of um, the history of abolition, uh, an American historian, David Brian Davis, pronounced in 2010 that uh, William's thesis had been widely discredited. Uh, you will still find some who hold it they tend to be marxists uh, but as i explain in the book on, on the chapter in economics of my book um apart from that i'm not a marxist but i, I observe that um, those who have studied um uh, the uh, the history of the economics of um, colonialism and of post-colonial societies uh, generally find that um Marxist economics owes a whole lot more to Marxist theory than it does to historical data, and it does not come come, come off well when when it confronts historical data. Um, so so that's that's one uh, um, as it were economic issue in the discussion of slavery. And then yes, um, so so yeah, yes, we we clearly um, we, we money was made out of slavery and the slave trade. Um, um but not i think uh um it, it didn't contribute decisively uh to to britain's industrial takeoff there were other factors that did that i think it was uh david eltis calculated that in a period roughly between 1807 and 67 there about 50 year period that uh, as much was spent on suppressing the transatlantic slave trade as had been won in profits from the previous 50 years of of slaving and that that's only uh suppressing the, the slave trade across the atlantic uh the british went on to 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 um spend resources of uh, money and people uh suppressing the, the trade and the institution across africa india and malaysia yeah and uh, uh, for its worth to to american political scientists uh, robert pape and Chaim kaufman um concluded that um the suppression of the atlantic slave trade alone was one of the most expensive uh, uh, moral international endeavors in modern history it's a fascinating period of, of history that you know when you go from participant to completely fighting against slavery it's a it's fascinating in itself i wanted to talk a little bit about you mentioned at the beginning and and i I'm, i was really interested in this because I don't, you talked about the empire being a source of both pride and shame. And I'm really interested in this question because 
I myself, speaking very personally here, I feel neither shame, but I don't feel pride either. In that, to me, what what took place in it so far in the past by people that I'm not familiar with, I don't feel either pride or shame. And I wondered whether that's because, you know, I read a lot of history books, so I'm inevitably slightly detached from one period of history to another. You know, they all they're all different periods of history. And I know being British, yeah. uh, I should have a connection. Uh, and I do. I mean, I, had, I admire figures from history, but pride or shame, I don't feel about the British Empire. I feel like it happened because it was an empire. It, you yeah. know, yeah. Do you, uh, I guess that, that's interesting, and I've heard other people say that to me as well. So do, do, when you look back at Britain's past, do you feel pride or shame about anything? Uh, I, I admire people. So, um, for example, Winston Churchill, I, I admire him. Um, you know, there, there'll be other figures going further back, the, the, you know, Wellington and, and those types of of, but I wouldn't say I'm proud of them. Maybe Churchill slightly differently because he's a little bit more recent. He maybe, but uh, because he's more famous abroad as well, perhaps. Uh, but even then, I'd, I'd struggle to say I'm pr proud of him. Yeah. Okay. So, so I'm willing to to put aside uh, pride and shame. I mean, I guess that's perhaps an indication of just how closely I identify myself as British. So I tend to own whatever happened in our recent past, either for worse or for better. Well, I'm wondering if it's a failing of mine now, you see. <laughs> maybe it is. <laughs> uh, or maybe I identify too closely. Um, but uh, OK, let, let's it, it could be a failing of yours. I don't know. But let, let me let me put the, 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 those terms aside and say, yes, uh, admire is, is, is an alternative to pride. So I admire Churchill's uh, risky decision to keep us in, in the war against Hitler in 1940. I admire the fact that he wagered the future of Britain and the empire on that gamble. Um, it was a risky one. He could have failed. It was right that he took that decision and thank goodness we did prevail. Likewise, I, I'm, I admire the abolitionists. And I, if I'm not, yes, I'm not, am I ashamed of, of the slavers of the 1700s? Well, well no, because I, I uh, I, I don't identify myself with them, but I, I lament, I lament the fact that that um, um, people in this country did such things. Uh, um, yeah, I would agree with lament you. Lament and admiration uh, would be perhaps a a better pair of words than pride and shame, because uh, yes, you're right. Uh, we, we, yeah, neither you nor I are responsible for the good things our ancestors did, nor nor the bad things. Um, uh, but but never, I think I think it's. If we identify ourselves as British, yes. If you identify yourself as with with anything, you you, you well, I guess there are strong and weak forms of identification. Uh, you could say, well, I'm British just because I've got a passport. But frankly, I could just as happily spend my life in in uh, Hong Kong or New York. Uh, that's a pretty weak sense of identification. Uh, if you identify yourself more strongly, then it's because you find something in the idea of Britain. Or the institutions of Britain, or the history of Britain that you find admirable, and you want to identify yourself with it, and I'm that kind of Britain. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that makes perfect sense. It's just, um, 
Yeah, I think when you when you mention slavers and and I feel so disconnected from them, it would be difficult to to be emotional. So I'm glad you mentioned Churchill during the Second World War, which is probably, I mean, the British Empire's, as you say in your book, is when the British Empire is probably most violent. It is probably the the crowning achievement of the British Empire in defeating both Japan and and Germany with a little help from America. Don't want to miss them out. So I, I don't think there's any any doubt about that. But I was very interested. Do you think that this is something that is is overlooked by many in that it's sort of Britain alone and we forget about the uh, contribution of the empire? Yeah, I think I think we, we did for a long time. Um, certainly all the, the war movies I saw as a kid in the 1560s, um, all the British people were white as far as I remember. But... You may know that uh, there is now a memorial uh, around the the northwest corner of um, Green Park in London. There are a set of war memorials. There's an Australian one. There's a New Zealand one. And just near there, there's also one to, um, I forget how it's described, but in, in effect to Indian and African and West Indian uh, contributions to the imperial effort during the Second World War, and I, I rather worried at one point that uh, the latter, this, this last memorial, had been a kind of afterthought, and I was very pleasantly uh, surprised to discover that that was actually erected before the Australian one. <laughs> but but we're talking around twenty years ago, so I, I think you're right that 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 had been in the neglect of the imperial dimension of the of the war. I guess I. I I've known about it for some long time because my, my father fought in Italy and mentioned at one point that Americans mistook him for an Indian because he'd been so blackened by the sun uh, and the, the Indian division was just to his to his right. So I, I was aware that uh, Indian people were, were fighting not just in Burma, but also in, in Europe. Well, to, uh, over two million. We've had Robert Lyman on the podcast and over two million yeah. Uh, I think about two and a half million Indians volunteered to fight during the Second World War. And, uh, yes, I, I was in communication with Robert before I published my book. And from what he wrote, I, I it's quite a subtle point. I mean, they, yes, they volunteered to fight with the British against the Japanese. No, they didn't want the British to stay ruling them forever. But what they did want to do is to rule themselves through the institutions that the British have built. And they did not want the Japanese to to take that over or dismantle it. So um, there's both, a, there's, a, as it were, a, a limited tribute to the British there. Now, one area of, of colonialism that I think I, I'd be keen to, to talk with you about is, is famine. And in particular, there are two, one close to home, uh, Ireland, yeah. the famine of, of 1846 to, to 1850. Uh, and then during the Second World War in Bengal as well. Yeah. Now, the famine in Ireland and indeed the famine with Bengal, they aren't, I don't think anyone seriously believes that they were intentional in any way. However, some Irish nationalists right. talk of them as being genocide, but, but they're an extreme. Yes. I, yeah, I don't think uh, um, uh, any serious historians would, no. would think that. But it does, it does suggest that there is when one country is ruling another country there is there can be a neglect resulting in a famine and do you think that famine 
is particularly more likely. Uh, I mean, with Ireland, it, it, there are a number of complicating factors. So I do get that it's probably a slightly simplistic question. Well, let, let's take take India first of all, because the uh, famous economist Matcha Sen um, uh, put forward the thesis that um, where you have democracy, you don't have famine. So because the British Empire was not, not democratic, that's why you had famine. Um, and I, I, get, I think the, the logic is that uh, democracy, democracy communicates distress from the bottom to the top faster and uh, through democratic agitation in the press, uh, government is forced to respond more fully and more, more swiftly. But there are problems with that thesis. In India, there were a number of severe famines in the late 19th century, some of which were dealt with um, the, the response was was prompt and efficient, uh, some of which uh, the, res the response was totally inadequate. Uh, Tutanka Roy, the economic historian at the LSE, reckons that throughout the late 19th century, British officials learnt from their mistakes. So, so no, one, no one intended famine. Uh, sometimes the response was inadequate for a variety of reasons, some of which some, some mistakes are honest, some mistakes are culpable. Um, but he argues that the British uh, studied and learnt from their mistakes, uh, so that by 1900, uh, partly through the uh, development of a, a railway network, which among other things served to bring relief more quickly to famine-stricken areas, he reckons that famine as a regular occurrence had been dealt with. Um, so there's that. Uh, but also in terms of Bengal, uh, Sen's thesis hits the rocks partly because the Bengal famine happened in 1943 and since the mid-1930s the uh, government of the province of Bengal or whatever the Bengal was called then, the state of Bengal, um, was a democratically elected Indian government. Um, now uh, uh, the, the causes of the famine or the, or the failure to relieve the famine, highly controversial, uh, there was, I think, um, a problem of divided responsibility between the imperial government and the provincial government that was partly the cause. But it, it wasn't, it wasn't, as it were, uh, the lack of awareness at the top that there was trouble, nor was it that Brits were uh, tenured uh, to the stress of Indians because the provincial government of India was run by Indians. Um, and there's also a dispute as to whether the problem was actually lack of quantity of supply of food, or as others think, um, a problem of distribution of an adequate supply. Uh, so Churchill gets blamed because he didn't immediately allow the diversion of shipping to, to transport food to Bengal. Um, and some people say this because he was a racist. There's no evidence of that. I mean, whatever Churchill's general, general views of, of non-white peoples was, in this case, there's no evidence that it was racial prejudice that made him make the decision. The real reason was that the Allies, having just booted Rommel out of North Africa, were planning to invade uh, for the first time, to invade mainland Europe through Sicily. And shipping was scarce. And in order to carry through that plan, they needed all the shipping they could get. That's why Churchill did not immediately divert shipping to Bengal in addition to the fact that there was some dispute as to whether the problem was lack of supply at all. Uh, and I think there's good reason to suppose it wasn't lack of supply, it was, it was internal distribution that was the problem. 
so um, no, I think I, along with Tutanka Roy, the historian I mentioned earlier, I think we don't think the empire was, that as it were, that imperial government in India uh, was uh, the cause of, of famine. As for Ireland, uh, it's a different case. Uh, no one seriously thinks that, no one, well, no one sensible thinks the British seriously intended genocide. The, there are legitimate claims, there are perhaps legitimate claims that the government uh, um, was too niggardly in its response. Yes, there were shipments of grain leaving Ireland during the famine, uh, but Roy Foster, the um, leading historian of modern Ireland, uh, says that that really didn't account for much and, and there was plenty of stuff coming in at the same time. Interestingly, Irish nationalists uh, sometimes uh, repudiated offers of help from England because they didn't want Ireland to become dependent on England. So uh, there were failings in dealing with the famine. Uh, to what extent those failings were culpable, I think, is a question because 19th century governments, we need to remember, were very limited in resources and power. Nothing like the power that a, a modern British state has right now. So whether they could have done more and should have done more or done differently is is a controversial question that remains controversial. It, it does indeed. Overall, I think towards the end of the book, you balance up both positive and, and negative. And so I suppose a, a, the, the big question is um, in the in the final analysis, do you view the British Empire as a positive impact on the world or an or a negative one? Yes, yeah, so um, you're right at the end. I do, do, I do draw up a, a debit and credit column. So on the debit column, you've got uh, the, the usually inadvertent spread of disease. Uh, you've got disproportionate violence. You've got a failure to admit uh, uh, native people to the top echelons of government um, until the very end. Um, you've got slavery. Uh, on the credit column, you've got anti-slavery. Uh, you've got the suppression of intertribal violence, you've got uh, spread of modern medicine, you've got stable government, rule of law, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so you've got two columns. And I say, and I, I, I've always held this, you, you, you've, got a, you've got a different sets of evils and goods. You've got chalk and cheese. You can't say sensibly, okay, this quantity of, of the spread of, of modern medicine was worth that quantity of excessive violence. It doesn't make sense. Um, so like, like any state, uh, the British imperial state presided over good and bad things. So how do we reach a judgment? Uh, so what I say is this, well, one way to um, reach it is to say that um, there was something at the center of the imperial system that was evil. And so it doesn't matter how many railways the British built, or um, um, uh, how many um, people modern medicine spread by the British saved. At its heart, the empire was racist. Or at its heart, it was all, all about um, economic exploitation. And that, that, that's the, the, the reason, <laughs> I think, that um, there was such a violent reaction to my moderate claim that the British can find good things as well as bad in their empire five years ago is because the line that has been peddled among us by um, a noisy, shouty, anti-colonialist left wing 
is that uh, the British Empire was equivalent to Nazism. So it doesn't matter what good stuff it did. It, at its heart, it was nasty and racist and exploitative and violent. And uh, uh, insofar as we venerate it, insofar as people like Bigger venerate it, admire it, we represent the, the kind of racist, white supremacist um, um, attitudes uh, that, that were at the heart of colonialism. And so in order to combat the systemic racism that infects us now, we have to repudiate the whole of that history. But the reason we do it is because essentially, essentially, the British Empire was Nazi and uh, committed genocide and whatever. And so in, in the book, I examine that question and I come to the conclusion there was nothing, nothing in the British Empire that approximated Nazism. Nothing. Not even uh, I, th there was no intentional genocide anywhere. I mean, there were, yes, there were, uh, for example, in Tasmania, there were individual uh, settlers who uh, were intent on exterminating natives. Uh, but um, even then, I don't think the majority of settlers were not of that mind, and the colonial government certainly was not of that mind. Um, and General Kitchener's concentration camps in the Second Anglo-Boer War in 1900 had nothing to do with Auschwitz. Anyway, I could go on. So um, I, uh, there was nothing equivalent to the crazed, massively murderous, racist heart of Nazi Germany in the British Empire. So that's one thing. So let's put that aside. And then I say there were significant uh, humanitarian and liberal endeavors close to the heart of the empire. Uh, I've mentioned the anti-slavery commitment for 150 years. There was also um, a liberal political commitment. So the British learned from the American War of Independence that the empire couldn't uh, keep tight control over its distant far-flung parts. And that's why from 1867 onwards, um, the so-called white dominions of Canada, um, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa become increasingly independent. And by 1930, they're virtually independent states. And after this, the First World War, India was set on the same track. Uh, and you, you'll find in the 1820s, the three Scottish governors of Kolkata, Madras, and Bombay, all three of them say, look, folks, we can't be here forever. The most we can do is help establish half-decent government uh, in India, and then leave with grace and hopefully with the affection of the Indians. Uh, they said that way back in the 1820s. So there was, a, there was a, a liberal strand, a humanitarian strand, and the other things, the empire learned from mistakes. Uh, so that's why I think the, the way in which the empire exhausted itself in the Second World War is a kind of, says a lot, <laughs> that uh, the way the empire died or exhausted itself before it died was to spend itself fighting Nazism. And, and Marjorie Perham, the expert on colonialism in Africa, who flourished around 1950s, 60s, she said that um, the story of the British in Africa is a story of um, increasing virtue. I think one thing I've, I've been struck since being introduced to the whole history world, which is alien to me from my studying the subject up to degree level, which is applying today's values to the past. There's, of course, that great quote, uh, the past is a foreign country. Yes. And I'm assuming this is something that, that this is a worrying development in the world of history. Yes, and I find it, it's, it's quite prevalent. It's quite prevalent. So I was talking to someone yesterday for another podcast 
he was in Canada and he was, you know, I, we were talking about uh, um, the introduction by the British of a cash economy uh, and the implication that this was, you know, this capitalist industrialist economy. And I said, well, I'm not entirely sure what's wrong with that. Uh, he said, well, no, there's nothing wrong with it, just provided you have uh, workers' rights and insurance and guarantees and uh, minimum, you know, minimal uh, conditions of work and um, all the kind, of, all the array of uh, uh, legal rights and protections that we now in the early 21st century in the Western world expect. And I said, well, yeah, but <laughs> it took us a long time to get here. Uh, when we started off with, with the Industrial Revolution, we had a feudal system. The, 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 there was a system whereby the, the wealthier contributed to taking care of the poor in their rural districts. But that got completely overwhelmed by urbanization, industrialization. It took us a long time to work out uh, how to limit and control the inhumane effects of certain industrial arrangements. Uh, so there's a strange, to, to me, just a, a strange... Um, a strange um, lack of awareness that the world that you and I inhabit in Britain or Canada or Australia or in the Western world certainly um, is extraordinarily privileged in terms of, generally speaking, in terms of wealth, health, security, prosperity, um, and if you if you have if you if you've read history, uh, you will know this is not usual. I mean, please God, it will stay this way. But I, I don't think we can be one hundred percent confident it will. Um, but it took a lot of building. A lot of people, part, parts of the world, do not enjoy it, our, our conditions. Um, and so it's 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 just it seems to me stupid. Or if I'm going to be less provocative completely lacking in historical imagination to realize just how different circumstances were. So the, the one um, case where I try and explain this is that, no, of course, once one, one you never you, I mean, I'm not a pacifist. I think sometimes one has to use violence to stop great evil and to protect the innocent. But even so, one should never use more violence than one really has to. And um, given a, 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 an extraordinarily strong state and uh, given the extraordinary stability we usually enjoy in contemporary Britain, um, the use of force by the police can be very restrained and is constrained, and rightly so. But if you, if you put yourself in a position where the state is not so strong, where it, where it is um, fragile, where there are, it, it's, it, with the threat of the state dissolving and society being plunged into anarchy where you get ruled by warlords um, then if you want to stop that the quantity of violence you have to to use and the risks you have to take in using it um, are much higher and and justifiably higher uh, so you've got to you've got to get yourself out of where we are now and put yourself into a very different situation if you're going to judge it rightly um, so I think it I think one needs to what, what more what more principles require does vary according to circumstance um and so when you're judging the past you've got to understand the circumstances rightly that reminds me of something i was reading in a book on medieval history where 
a father sells his child to sla- into slavery, which on the face of it is a terrible moral, moral decision. But if that father is facing starvation or that family is facing starvation and the only way the child can survive is to be sold into slavery in the medieval period, then that becomes a moral, morally acceptable decision. And it's really an awareness of what people went through in the past. That yeah, and, and yeah, exactly. exactly. And, and uh, even today, people in some parts of the world, maybe even in our own society, their lives are very constrained, and their choices are very constrained. And some choices they have to make are awful. And before we judge, we need to to um, we need to open our eyes to that. Otherwise, we end up being moralistic. Well, Nigel, this has been a a real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much for your time. The book, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning, uh, best of luck with it. It, um, It's going well so far, so let's hope it, it, uh, I really hope it continues to do so. And um, thank you again. Uh, Thanks, Oliver, for this chance. It's been good to talk to you and you've raised some really interesting questions that keep me chewing, chewing over for quite a while. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you found that interesting. You can get in touch with me either way. I'd be very happy to hear from you. If you like the podcast, please do subscribe. You'll get upcoming episodes in your feed. On Tuesday, I'm starting the Aspects of History Film Club with friend of the show, director Tim Hewitt. First film is Lincoln, directed by Steven Spielberg and starring Daniel Day-Lewis and Sally Field. Next Saturday, I have Ian Mortimer talking about the Middle Ages. Then I've got John Sayles on 18th century Scotland and America. And then Anthony Selden talking about walking along the Western Front. I've got some ancient history coming up too, and in March, our film of the month will be the Iran Revolution movie Argo, directed by Ben Affleck and starring him and Brian Cranston, so I do hope you can join me. Until then, thank you and good night.